There's a kind of a fiction that has been floating around Western civilization for at least several hundred years. It's a fiction encapsulated by Mark Twain's uh, The Prince and the Pauper or Dickens' Tale of Two Cities, Dumas' The Man in the Iron Mask. And in more popular culture, more recently, we've got The Parent Trap. You remember The Parent Trap? I think there was a 50s version of it and a 2000 aughts version of it. Uh, Trading Places, the Dan Aykroyd, Eddie Murphy vehicle from the 80s and 90s. The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Uh, and then now they got the new one that's coming out just called Bel Air. And it's this sort of, uh, these are just a, a smattering of, of the many sort of stories that we've been telling of people who get to start over or who get to trade places. They get to exchange themselves and their problems for somebody else and their life. And this is a great fantasy that our culture holds up and and longs for, right? Wouldn't it be nice, right? At the end of all these stories, we're all left with this sort of sense of, wouldn't it be nice if I could get rid of all the bad things in my life and I could suddenly, and by some cataclysm of good fortune, be given all of that person's good things, their comforts, their securities, their advantages. Wouldn't that be nice? That would be nice. That would be nice. How would that be possible, though? Right? How could something like that be? It's sheer fantasy. It's a pure fiction. And then all of those stories are filled with shenanigans and nonsense because what we, what we know is that it doesn't really work because wherever you go, what's true, there you are. Wherever you go, there you are. Like the problem isn't just if we could just switch places with somebody else for a season. The problem isn't just we need a life makeover. Like, right, the problems in our life don't need a topical cream. They need a surgery. They need transplants. They need something drastic and gruesome. And so open up in your Bibles to Isaiah 53. We're going to talk about something drastic and gruesome this morning. Isaiah 53. One of the most powerful, one of the most significant chapters in the entire Bible. Last week we began our study of Isaiah 53 in Isaiah 52. Look at that with me, Isaiah 52 verse 13. Here we meet this, uh, this Savior who's going to bring all of this good news that, that Isaiah 52 talks about. Here we meet this Savior who's going to be the most high, the most exalted one. But in the next verse, in verse 14, it says that his appearance is going to be so marred beyond human semblance. He's going to suffer such violence against himself that he's going to look barely human. How can this, this most exalted person be the most humiliated most wrecked person. And then in verse 15 it says, and in this way, he's going to accomplish the thing that God has been promising that's going to shut the mouths of all the kings and all the nations. This is the, most, this is the thing that, that every king, right? Every warlord, every demagogue is trying to achieve through their policies and their, and their military might. But, but only he, this one, the Lord's Christ, is going to accomplish this thing. Most high, most wrecked, and in this way accomplished salvation. So we come to chapter 53, verse 1. Who has believed what he's heard from us? This is unbelievable stuff. 
In verse 2 and 3, it goes on to describe this, this Savior, the servant of the Lord, as a man of sorrows, who is going to be not just the most unappealing person you ever met, but an undesirable person, an undesirable hero. Somebody who saves us, but we don't even care. And so we're going to look this morning at this man, this man of sorrows acquainted with grief, who was despised and we esteemed him not. We're going to look more closely at this in verses 4 to 6. And we're going to look at it from the lens of of four things that verses 4 to 6 explain, which are four misunderstandings that we tend to have. I would say that we all, apart from Scripture, have them, and most of us, even having acquired them through Scripture, slide back into them. So this will be helpful for all of us. And verses 4 to 6 will explain why the Savior had to suffer. That's the big shock of Isaiah 53, that the Savior has to suffer. Why did he have to suffer? And it also explains how this this one who, who suffered so badly, how did he become the Savior? Why did the Savior have to suffer? How did our suffer, the sufferer, become the Savior? So let's look at the first of these misunderstandings here in verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. So in verse 3 it says he's a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Verse 4 says he bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. Verse 3 says, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Verse 4 says, we esteemed him, if we esteemed him at all, we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. What does that mean? It means that we thought that what he suffered, he deserved. Do you think that way most times? That what people suffer, they kind of had it coming. They kind of deserve it. They said this about Jesus while he was hanging on the cross. Of course, I'm going to go back and forth from talking about Uh, This person here, as the suffering servant or the Savior, kind of in the vague uh, terms of Isaiah, but then I'm going to slip up and just call him Jesus a bunch of times too, because that's who we're really talking about. So when Jesus is hanging on the cross, you remember one of the things the Pharisees, scribes, leaders reviled him by saying was, if God delighted in you, come down. Let, Let God deliver him if he delights in you. So Jesus, this whole, his whole ministry has been saying, me and the Father have a really special bond. I'm righteous, you're not. I have this close relationship with God. And then the Pharisees are like, oh, do you? Because it looks to all the world, to us, like God is judging you for being unrighteous. It looks to us like you are being punished. You are being smitten, stricken, and afflicted by God. So, so I guess if, if you do have that relationship, then come on down. And this is the normal, sort of almost nearly universal, pre-programmed way that we assume that God's work. That if we do bad things, they will punish us. Which means that if you see somebody who looks like they're being punished, what does it mean? They've done bad things. We're studying the book of Job on Wednesday nights. This is what Job's three friends are constantly trying to bring Job to admit. Like, Job... God doesn't do stuff like this without cause. You have iniquities. You have sins. You are wicked. You need to confess these things so we can move on. But it's not just in the Old Testament. It's not just in the sort of the old world. We go fast forward to John chapter 9. New Testament, Roman era, Jesus and his disciples. And the disciples see a man who was born blind. Remember this? And they say to Jesus, what do they say? 
So who sinned, this man or his parents? Right, the assumption is somebody sinned. Somebody, this has come up for some iniquity and some transgression. So when we see somebody suffering in the way that Jesus suffers, it's just natural to assume that God's mad at him, that he did something to deserve this. But what verse 4 says is he bore whose griefs? Say it, look at it and say it. He bore our griefs. And whose sorrows did he carry? Our sorrows. The griefs Jesus was acquainted with weren't the ones he deserved. And he was a man of sorrows not because he did anything wrong. In fact, the first big truth here this morning is that Jesus suffered for our sins. I want you to think about the images too that he's using here. He says uh, that Jesus bore our griefs. He carried our sorrows. So first of all, this is that transfer, that exchange that we've been talking about, that we've been hoping in. He carried what we should be carrying. He bore what we should be bearing. There's a transfer of these things. Ours went to Him. There's an exchange here. Now, I I want to bring up to the surface a little bit of the, the image that Isaiah intended here and what every one of his first hearers and readers would have understood. This is the language of the sin offerings. Right? When somebody is going to bear your griefs, take away your sorrows. This is the language of Leviticus. Leviticus 1, Leviticus 3, 4, uh, climaxing in Leviticus 16 in the Day of Atonement. What, what would they do with these sin offerings? You know what they would do? They would, they would take the lamb or they would take the goat and they would confess, they would put their hands on that animal and confess their sins. I've done these iniquities. I've done these transgressions. I've done these sins. They would confess him. And by putting their hands on this animal, they would, they would sort of ritually transfer to that sacrifice all of their sins. And then they would bear them away, carry them to the altar or in the, on the Day of Atonement, also just out into the wilderness. This is what the servant of the Lord the hero, the Messiah that we've been looking forward to for hundreds and hundreds of years. This is what he is stepping into. That's this story. Isaiah is saying he is becoming that scapegoat. He's becoming that lamb who is about to be slain. That's what we're watching here in Isaiah 53. And this is why there's all these sufferings. And this is how he becomes the Savior. is because he is willing to submit to this transfer. Our sins go on him. So the first thing that we need to understand about our Savior is that Jesus took our sins, right? He suffered for our sins in our place and for our sake. This exchange is the mechanism of the gospel, right? What is the Bible about? What is the Bible for? Like, is, right, are we trying to mine wisdom from an otherwise uh, musty, dusty, fusty old book. We're trying to discover some pearls. No, the, the whole thing is crafted to, to convey to us this great good news. And that great good news is that we can be saved from all that we deserve. All the bad things that should come on us, 
We can be delivered from. And we can obtain for free unbelievable goods from our Creator God through Jesus. How is that possible? This is how. This exchange, this transfer, where our sins go on Him and He bears them, takes them away. He is crushed and pierced, punished, wounded in our place. This is how the good news of the Christian faith happens. You and I put our hands on the sacrifice and confess our sins, and then He takes them. This is the first misunderstanding that we need to address. The second misunderstanding is a misunderstanding about ourselves. So in verse 4, it's pretty clear who's, like, who's got the grief, who's got the sorrow. It's us. Verse 5 underlines this point and kind of underlines it so many times it rips through the page. Each line in verse 4 is emphasizing what we deserve. What we do and what we deserve. Verse four, verse five, I'm sorry, he was pierced. So each line is, is something that happened to the Messiah, something that happened to Jesus, and why? What caused it or what was the result of it? He was pierced for our transgressions. We transgress so much that we deserve to be killed. He was crushed for our iniquities. Our iniquities are of such a quality that we deserve to be crushed. He was chastised, punished, so that we might have peace. We have no hope of peace. We have only hope of punishment apart from what He did. And lastly, with His wounds we are healed. I like the old King James in this, right? By His stripes. Much more vivid, isn't it? What are those stripes? Ain't talking about zebras. How do you get them stripes? He was whipped, he was flogged, he was beaten. That's what we deserved. But we walk away with life. And he walks away with stripes. Each one of these lines emphasizes what is really the first of the great hard truths that we're going to discover this morning. These three hard truths compose what is sort of the the essential, basic components of the gospel message that we believe in, which you you have to believe in to receive these good things that Scripture lays out for us. They also, Christian, compose three essential parts of your and my identity as those who believe in Jesus. So the first part, the first core big thing, which is a very hard truth to believe, is that we are this bad of sinners. Try to, get to, you know, try to get people to admit that they spilled milk on the table, <laughs> right? Let alone that you are so bad in your sin that you deserve to be crushed by God. It's a hard sell. We have all done what verse 5 is describing, and we all deserve what verse 5 is describing. We all, look at verse 6, where it lays out really the scope of this exchange Notice the repeated emphasis at the beginning and end on all and how in the middle there's a call out that specifies to make sure we understand everyone. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one of us to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
You have done this, and you deserve this. I have done this, and I deserve this. And yet we have received peace with God, and we have received life instead. In my studies of this chapter, I stumbled on something really interesting. You would think that with all of the sheep language and stuff in the Bible, that, that uh, sheep going astray is like a big reoccurring theme. It only, it's only just talked about one other place in the whole Old Testament where sheep are going astray. One other place. Really interesting. Psalm 119. So Bible geeks... You know, Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the Bible. It's 176 verses. And what, what are all those verses about? They're all about the, the, the psalmist's uh, adoration of God, love for the Word, and promises to, to keep the God's Word. Let, let me just read you a couple of the verses coming up to the verse I'll, I'll tell you about. In the last sort of chunk of, of Psalm 119, Let me come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your Word. I like this guy. Let my plea come before you. Deliver me according to your word. My lips will pour forth praise, for you teach me your statutes. My tongue will sing of your word, for all your commandments are right. This is what Psalm 119 is filled with. I love your word. Help me keep your word. I'm going to keep your word. I am keeping your word. But you know what the last verse of Psalm 119 is? Verse 176, the psalmist says, I go astray like a sheep. I go astray like a lost sheep. God, seek me. My only hope. After 175 verses, don't you feel like this sometimes? You get done singing a song and you're like, I, you know what? I do love God. I do love God. I am thankful for Jesus. I, I, do, I, do, I do believe. I do believe. And sometimes you get really excited about this stuff. And then, you know what? For all, for, all, for all 175 verses of me adoring you and loving you and promise you I'm going I'm to do what's right, God, I go astray like a lost sheep and my only hope is not in my ability to keep your word. It's in that you, that you would seek me. We are a lot more sinful, in other words, than we give ourselves credit for. We talked about this a couple weeks ago in Isaiah 64, verse 6. You remember this, uh, the verse, all uh, my righteousness is like filthy diapers. You remember that verse in Isaiah 64, 6 there? Right? Not, not all of our bad things. We know all of our bad things stink and we're ashamed of them. But all of our, all of our Texas trips, all of our good things also are, are complicated. Right? They're complicated because sin touches everything. Everything we touch, sin touches. And this is heartbreaking when we get moments of seeing the scope of it, like here in verse 5. That all of my transgressions and my iniquities deserve piercings and crushings and punishment. Which is why we tend to ignore it, we tend to deny it, but the truth, of course, is that we go astray and we are, apart from God, seeking and saving us, we are lost. Our nature drives us toward... Toward what? What happens to sheep who go astray? Yeah, they become sandwiches. Right? That's what we deserve. In fact, there's another translation here of verse 6. It says, All we like sheep have gone astray. 
we have turned everyone to his own way. And the, the New English translation translates this, and the Lord has caused the sins of all of us to attack him. Which is a little more fitting for the sheep imagery. All the wolves surrounding us, all the wolves of our sins and the consequences therein surrounding us, and we are suddenly plucked from it, and Jesus is put into it, and then he is attacked. What do we deserve? We don't deserve accolades, we deserve punishment. That's hard to hear, isn't it? Because you work so hard and you try to be smart and you try to be clean and do a good job. And you are not getting the accolades that you deserve, in my opinion. I think you're fantastic. But the Bible says we all deserve punishment, not more accolades. We don't need, therefore, assistance. We're not coming to the Bible for a leg up, for some advantage tactically in our workplace or at home, some trick or tip that will just put us over the edge to achieve the control that we want in our lives. We have come to the Bible because... I go astray. Seek me. As my only hope is salvation. I need to be saved. Why did Jesus suffer so much? Because he got what we deserve. We need to be sought and saved. So we need somebody to seek us and to save us. The third thing that we misunderstand is a misunderstanding about God, which is the second very hard truth, the second core aspect of the gospel that we need to reflect on, and as those who believe in the gospel, the second big chunk of our identity. We are those who sin this much. We are those who God loves this much. If this is on the one hand the depth of our sins, this is also a measure of the distance of the height of God's love. Right? If this is a measure of the depth of our sins, and this is a measurement of the height of God's love. Look at the, the end of verse 6, just to see it in the text. We've, like sheep, we've gone astray, and the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. God knows he's not punishing Jesus for his sins. He knows he's punishing Jesus for our sins. Right? This whole thing that we see here, God is in on it. It's his plan for salvation. It's his plan that he's been leading us up to and promising. And as we see in verse 1, as we've talked about before here, that this servant of the Lord is described as the arm of the Lord. How much abuse and violence would you like your arm to take today, right? Well, it's just your arm. We'll just lay it over here and beat it with bats and chop it up to pieces and crush it and pierce it and chastise it and wound it. Right? What? What is this saying about this servant, about this one who is going through this, that in some way that we don't fully understand yet, he is, he is connected to the Lord. He is connected to God and attached to Him in extraordinary ways. And so what this means is that God is allowing this exchange to take place, even though it is hurting Him personally. That's your God and how much He loves you. God is not some absentee father. He's not some demagogue who is overreacting to minor infractions. And that's, how, that's how the world, that's how we naturally see God. What does he care if we do fill in the blank? 
right? Your generation had one. Today's generation has something for that. What does he care if we... Just some demagogue freaking out over nothing. That's not who this God is. He knows the scope of sin. He knows what it deserves. He has experienced what it deserves. He takes it into Himself. It is a very different God that we meet in Jesus. And we are continually needing to bring our idea of who He is back to Isaiah 53. Back to what we see in Jesus Christ. Now here's the last misunderstanding. We misunderstand, of course, Jesus and what is happening in His sufferings. We misunderstand ourselves. We think we all of us think we're better than we are and deserve better than we get. And we all of us misunderstand God. We think He's more petty. We think He's more annoying, more problematic than He is. He is in on this, our salvation. He is deeply, personally invested. The last thing we misunderstand, the last of the very hard truths of our faith, is that we are saved by faith. So again, the emphasis of verse 6 is on the fact that it is all. Right? All we like sheep. We've all gone astray. It's the iniquities of every one of us that's on Him. And He calls that out in the middle of that verse, right? Every one of us. Because all of us kind of think in the back of our minds, well, not me, really. Not really me. I mean, not us. Not, not this. Not, not my friends. Like, we're not bad. We're not that. We're not that bad. Because we, we understand. We watch the right programming. Right? We, we work hard. We are intelligent. We volunteer. We, we care. I care. How can I be included in this? And we all think that there's some magical enough that we are good enough. We measure up to something. But that's just not the case. That's what Isaiah 53 is claiming. I mean, believe what you want, I guess. But what this is saying is that you and I are not. Whatever enough is, we fall short. And so we cannot be saved by measuring our works against our faults. Right? You, if you and I have some sort of fantasy of coming before God on the last day and saying, look at all the good things I did. God's going to stand there and go, but, but you didn't want to do that good thing. You had a bad attitude that whole time. You were made to do that thing. You only did that thing so you would get this other good thing for you. When you did that good thing, you only did it with half a heart. You, didn't really, you, you did that good thing. You quit too early. You did that good thing, but you knew you should have done this better thing. He, right? None of our successes, none of our accomplishments are going to hold up to that kind of scrutiny. All that they're going to do is end up further condemning us. We cannot be, in short, saved by what we do, have done, or hope to do. That can't have any part of it. The only thing that is going to bring us to salvation is Jesus and the only thing that's going to connect us to Him, that connection is called faith. That we believe, not in ourselves, but in what He did. We can only be saved by faith because salvation is only possible with Jesus. It's not possible with me, you, religion, church, good works, hard works, political parties, activism. There's no other connection or attachment or activity that can do anything to bring us to salvation. It is only Jesus 
and then our attachment of faith to him. So then what should we do? Well, verse 1 says, Who has believed? Who has believed what he has heard from us? What we should do is we should believe in the power of this exchange. In other words, to, to borrow images from, from ancient biblical history, lay your hands on the Lamb, confess your sins and let Him take it. Believe in the power of this exchange. Believe in what Jesus accomplished for us. And I love that image of laying your hands on the Lamb that's about to get killed because that is a gospel image. Jesus just didn't die for people. He didn't just die for people. Like humanity. Jesus has no interest in humanity. He's got an interest in you and me. And he invites us to lay our hands on him, our sins, us and him, this exchange. Right throughout this passage, there's this, right, this emphasis on we, everyone. It's a personal salvation, it's personal exchange. Kids' class, uh, led by our illustrious Mr. Tony Rosendahl. Uh, is going over a catechism, the New City Catechism. I would commend any of you who are interested in learning the essentials of the, the, the essential teachings and beliefs of the Christian faith to head over there. They talked about question 24 this morning. So parents, you can, you can talk about this with your kid. Why was it necessary for Christ the Redeemer to die? Answer, since death is the punishment for sin, Christ died willingly in our place to deliver us from the power and penalty of sin and bring us back to God. By his substitutionary atoning death, he alone redeems us from hell and gains for us forgiveness of sins, righteousness, and everlasting life. It's a beautifully constructed sentence describing what this whole sermon's about. But I just want you to, to key in on that substitutionary atonement. It's a big, fancy word where Jesus is the substitute who atones for our sins. But I want you to know that according to Isaiah 53 in the story of the Bible, that's, it's a very personal thing. It's a very personal exchange. It's a sacrifice. Me for you is what Jesus is saying to each one of us. Me for you. So we are saved only... By putting our trust in Jesus and this exchange for ourselves. It's the only thing that saves us. And all Jesus is and all that he did funnels into this exchange. Our death for his life. So he dies and we get all the life. What we deserve, Jesus took. What Jesus deserves, he gives us. I'm going to do something unusual for us. I think I've only done this a handful of times. I really only do it when I try to confine myself to activities that the text calls us to. And this morning, it calls us to a moment of consideration. And so I would like to invite you all to bow your heads and close your eyes. It invites us to a moment of consideration, of personal reflection. Isaiah 53 says that we are this bad of sinners, but we are loved this much by God. 
And because Jesus took our sins, we may be saved from them if we believe in him. Friends, this morning, I want you to know that you are a sinner and you deserve what Jesus took. I know that you have accumulated for yourself griefs and sorrows because of your sin, angst and pain and darkness. And I want you to know in no uncertain terms that Jesus is the only Savior. He took it all and it killed him. Just like it will kill you. But he took it. He took the death that we deserve so that we can have life. And life only because Jesus deserves that life took our death on his cross and gave us this life. So he is the Lamb of God, sacrificed to take away your sin. That's what Jesus came to do. Now, friends, if you're here this morning and you believe, you have believed in Jesus Christ. Sacrifice to take away your sin. I want you to be at peace. He was chastised so we might have peace. He was wounded so we might be healed. I want you to be at peace and I want you to be healed. To believe in what Jesus' sufferings accomplished. I want you to hear this now. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Since we have been made righteous by what Jesus did, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Friend, you have peace with God. In Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now, for those who are in Christ Jesus, say it to yourself, there's no condemnation, no stripes, no wounds coming at you because of your sin, for Jesus took them all. But now if you're here this morning and you are here with a sense of guilt, with a sense of shame, I've done things that I shouldn't have done, I see that I'm a sinner. I see that I deserve some kind of divine punishment. If you're here and you don't know what to do with those things, I want you to do this. Feel free, if you, if you want, take a peek up at the screen and, and read this. If, if you take a peek at the screen and you're like, okay, I'm all good, go back to praying and pray for those who perhaps need to pray this prayer. This is an example of a prayer that you can either pray with me now or you can pray something like it at another time. But I want to include all of these aspects of the gospel of what we've been talking about in this prayer here. So pray with me. Jesus, I am full of sorrow at all my sin and folly. You don't need to pray out loud. Just pray in your mind and your heart. And Jesus, I need to be saved from those things. I see that there is no hope for me in myself or really in anything else. My only hope is in you, Jesus, that you would save me. So please, take my sins away. Give me your life. I believe that you and you alone can do this. Please do it for me now. And that's the exchange. And when you make the exchange, it's done. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for our Lord Jesus Christ. We are so thankful for His sufferings in our place and for our sake. That we may be able to get out from under the burden of our sin. 
all our griefs and sorrows that our foolishness and our sinfulness have accumulated, Jesus is willing to take and has taken for us so that we can simply and only by faith trust in what He has done, make this exchange, and it's done. What an un- Who has believed this report? What an unbelievable thing that we all here today are the beneficiaries of or may be the beneficiaries of. And so, Lord, I pray for those here who have put their faith and trust in Jesus. Help them to go out and live in the peace that they have with you, that they are at peace with the God of the universe. Help them to live without fear, that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because He took that condemnation. He was chastised and wounded. And we are free and at peace. Help us, Lord, who are Your people, to live in that freedom and to live with that peace deep in our hearts. And I pray, Lord, for those this morning who do not know that peace and who are anxious about the consequences of their sins as they well should be, Lord, I pray that they would turn now to Jesus and in their hearts pray that prayer, say those truths to you and make that exchange to receive Jesus' work in their place for their sake and put their trust in Him and what He has done. Lord, I pray that, that whoever here that needs to do that, Lord, that Your Spirit would work in them through this Word, that they might do that, that they might be saved, that they might come to know our Lord and Jesus. Our Lord Jesus. So Father, please bless this Word. Bless this time together. I pray that as You are calling all of us to Yourself, Lord, that Your Spirit would Help us come. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, amen.